let me read to you. It's from chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verses 1 to 17. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go, and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and, I, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall, not aff shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So... For the first time, arguably since the fall, there's peace in Israel. For the first time, David is sitting and he's got time to breathe. And his heart understandably moves towards establishing a place for God. He's established his own place. We've seen that in the first few chapters of 2 Samuel, that David works hard to establish his kingdom and to bring stability to Israel after a civil war and some unrest. So it's natural that he then turns his mind to say, well, how do I establish God's place here in the kingdom now? However, we know what happens. God shows up um, and he says, I'm not interested in what you're planning at the moment. Thank you, but no thank you. Um, he doesn't rebuke David, but he does make it very clear that what David has in mind is not right for now. And you can understand David, can't you? Because he's in this house of cedar. And if you know anything about cedar, it smells really good. And it's expensive. Imagine a house made of cedar. I don't even know if, what, what that would smell like, but probably better than a tent that's 400 years old. If this is the tent that he's thinking, and the, you know, scholars question, is this the tent that he bring? Because it looks like Solomon brings the tent up from Gibeah later. But either way, if this is the ancient tent, the tabernacle, it's a 440-year-old tent. That's got to smell. That's got to be pretty ratty. So you can understand why David is starting to feel a little bit uneasy about the situation. And yet God comes and he speaks. 
And the God of the Bible, the Israelite God, the God whom we worship, is what distinguishes him from the dumb idols of the world is he speaks. The God of Israel speaks. No other God speaks. So when God shows up and starts to say things, he has a purpose for it. And specifically, every time God speaks, he reveals something. That's what God does. He reveals constantly. And in this instance, he's, well, he's revealing, always reveals one, well, two things. First, he reveals himself. But in doing so, he reveals stuff that's going on. He reveals what's actually happening behind the curtain, you know, the Wizard of Oz. And here, in this passage, which we've read, I'm sure, many times, he's revealing three things. Surprise, surprise. Three things. He's revealing, first, people. He's revealing us. He's revealing a distracted people. He's showing that we are distracted. He then reveals himself to be faithful. And then he reveals his son to be the great hope of the world. Okay? So he is revealing a distracted people, a faithful God, and a son of hope. So let's walk through that and see what we can learn here. So, a distracted people. We've seen already David is a man of his culture as all of you are. You all will look at social media, you'll watch Netflix, and those are cultural things that David wouldn't have done. So although we are Christian, we are soaked in our culture, we're people of our age, and so is David. So he does things that kings of the ancient world did all the time. It's not because he's a pagan, it's just because he's living in his culture. And one of the things ancient kings did was after a great victory, when they are given rest, they build temples. Happens all through history. Temples or monuments to their god. And perhaps the most, well, well, why do they do it, right? Why do, why do you build it at the temple? Well, you do it because most of the ancient gods, well, all the ancient gods, except for the biblical god, every god is corrupt. Everyone. Because he or she can only be expected to continue to honor and bless you if you pay the price. So you build a temple to, to pay for the past blessing. Thank you for saving me from my enemies. And here, let's make it a really good temple because I want to bribe you for future help. So you do this because to not do it is to snub the gods. And I don't think David is necessarily this kind of a, is thinking that way, but we're going to talk about how maybe there's hints of it. But let's first say, let's use an example. One of them is a guy named, well, it's lots of them, but Thutmose III of Egypt. He uh, creates a temple after winning some battles for Amun-Ra, his god. And then his priests come back and they give this testimony from their god. Thutmose III, since you have built my dwelling place and you have outstripped all other kings in building my monuments, now I will establish your throne unto distant days. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So David is in some way, but is David really just being Thutmose? Is he being like Gudea, the god of Sumer, and all these other gods who, or, or um, kings who did this? Well, no, not necessarily. I don't think David is a complete heathen, but we do have to ask this question. God shows up and says, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel saying, why have you built me a house, not built me a house of cedar? In other words, what, David is, what God is saying is, David, I didn't ask you to build this. Thank you, but I didn't ask you. If that's the case then, Redeemer, why does David want to build the temple? See, there's a motive there that God doesn't approve of, obviously. He's saying, not yet. Again, he doesn't rebuke David. But there's something going on here that God has said, no, no, this isn't the right time, even if it's a good thing. And, I mean, we see this oftentimes, don't we? That good things, if they're unsolicited good things, can actually be harmful. Let me give an example, because I have children, as we all know. And if you've had kids, more than one is helpful, but if not, that's okay too. Um, 
an older child inevitably wants to help the younger child. So they do something like, here, let me pour your milk for you, or let me help you up onto this chair. The problem is the two-year-old never wants help. Never wants help. So it becomes a fight. So the very good intentions of the older child, because it's unsolicited, I often have to say to my kids, that's very nice, I'm glad you did it, but nobody asked you to do it. Nobody asked you to police your children <laughs> or your, your siblings. And because the good thing is unsolicited or at the wrong time, it actually can be a problem. And I think this is the case with all of us. I think we all have to be a little shrewder about realizing just because you have a good thing in mind does not mean God wants you to do it just because it's a good thing. God tells us what to do, not is this a good thing, right? And so there's that. But then let's go even deeper into David's identity. We have to hypothesize just a little here. David is a doer. He's a person who, since we've met him in 1 Samuel 16, he has been doing for God constantly, defending God, being humble for God, not killing Saul. He's been winning wars, slaying Goliath, establishing kingdoms. He's been a great doer. And now he's in a moment of rest. And I don't think he's really cut out for rest. Because the moment he has peace, he says, I got to build something. Something. I, I, I can't just, I mean, he's not, he's, you know, the guy who won't retire ever? It might be David. He's just not interested in retiring. And okay, that's, that's not a bad thing. But is it possible that David has been doing for God so long that he's now become to see just a little his identity is, I do for God. This is how I relate to God. He receives and I give. I do. And this becomes his identity. Maybe. Is it there? Is it that God is possibly saying, David, if I let you build the temple, then you're going to think that's the kind of God I am. The one who says, the way you are to relate to me is to continually give to me, like these other gods that are needy, right? Is that possible that he's saying, I don't need you to give this to me? So what he's revealing, is he revealing a distracted David? He's looking at the wrong thing. And also, at the moment, you're going to see, revealing the kind of God he is, which is not like the gods of the earth. Is it possible that David has maybe just a little forgotten that his job, as all of ours, is to give visibility to and representation to what God is doing in the earth, not to what we are doing. And so if we build, if we fill Niagara region with Redeemer's building projects, will people look at Redeemer instead of what God is doing? Is it possible that maybe this is a, a protective of God saying, David, let's hold off here. Now I know people will say, if you're shrewd Bible students, you'll say, but in 1 Chronicles 22, God says, I don't want David to build because he's got blood on his hands. You may remember that. Well, I'll teach you one thing about biblical scholarship. You don't always go to find let other scriptures help you in Samuel. Because Samuel, the writer of Samuel, is trying to do something. He left out that information for a reason. He wants you to see a different aspect, a different motive here. And so, yes, we can look at Chronicles and talk about David having too much blood on his hand. And a man of peace, Solomon, Shalom, will be the man who builds the temple. But here it seems that there's a different thing of David being told, not now. You're busy looking at the temple, but here I need to refocus you on what I'm doing. Not what you're to do, but what I'm doing. And so I think it's possible that David is distracted a little, as we all can be. So God comes and reveals that, but more importantly, he comes and he reveals who he is. See, because the world sees the God of the Bible... Um, if you're watching, if you're here, if you're a skeptic or on the fringes of Christianity or checking it out, you think of God like the other, like, like he's like every other God, that he's needy, that he is faith needy as opposed to faithful. 
Um, and a great example of it comes, um, there's, the, the world thinks of the, the gods this way, and, and there's this book. It's a novel by, written by a guy named Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman is a Norse scholar, a great writer. It's a book called American Gods. I do not suggest you read it unless you are faint, uh, not faint of heart. Let me just say that. Sometimes as a pastor, I have to be careful. I read a lot of books, and I'm, I'm afraid you're going to think, if I'm reading it, it's all puppy dogs and ice cream. No, this is a, a dirty, hard, it's a, it's a tough book to read. But what it is, a, it's a fascinating idea. He writes this story, and he says, imagine, we have all these ancient gods, and he includes Jesus in this, right? He's, all these, he's like all these religions, and all these ancient gods have come to North America through immigration. The problem is, they come here, and... Um, They've, uh, they're finding that they're no longer the sole objects of worship because modern world has other gods, technology, power, all these different things. So the book is predicated on this battle. The old gods are waging a last-ditch battle to keep the hearts of humans against the modern gods of technology and money and so on. And it's, it's a fascinating story. But when the god Odin, the Norse god, is explaining why the gods are weak, here's what he has to say. When the people came to America, they brought us with them. The land is vast. Soon enough, our people abandoned us, remembered us only as creatures of the old land, as things that had not come with them to the new. Our true believers passed on or stopped believing, and we were left lost and scared and dispossessed to get by on what little smidgens of worship or belief we could find, and to get by as the best we could. Think of us as symbols. We're the dream that humanity creates to make sense of the shadows on the cave wall. So this is Gaiman, Neil Gaiman, that, that's the wizardly-looking man. This is his, and modern Canadians think of the gods this way, think of Christianity this way. It's kind of like Christmas spirit. Have you ever seen the movie Elf? You know, the Christmas, Santa Claus's sleigh only flies because it's powered by Christmas spirit, faith. And if you lose faith, the god loses faith, loses strength. Because the per perception of modern Canada is that religion is man-made and therefore man-powered. And if we stop believing in them, they lose power and they die because they're not actually self-contained beings. The gods are just our creations. What we create uses the platonic idea there about the shadows on the wall. And that's the way most people think. That God is this sort of God that he needs your worship. He requires you show up here because if he doesn't, his power drains a little or something, or his glory drains. There's that assumption in Canada and a lot of Christians as well, and I think maybe in people like David and myself even, who love to work for God, and we feel like we're feeding something into the system. So this is the way the world thinks, but then God shows up and he says, this is not at all who I am, here's who I am, and he does it in this speech that he gives to David. And he says very simply, there's two things that differentiate me from every other god. In fact, there's no other gods. Any god who demands something from you because he needs it is not a god. Because a god who needs is not god. He's you. He's me. So God shows up and he says two very simple things in this passage. He says, first, David, I have been with you. Okay? And then he says, I will be with you. But the first thing is interesting, isn't it? Is it possible that David, just a little, is thinking, I need to domesticate God. I need to find a temple for him and put him here. Because if he is not present in the city with me, how do I know he'll be faithful? Is it possible? And the only reason I bring that up as a possibility is because God's first thing he says to David is, I was with you, David. 
in the sheep fields. I took you from being a shepherd to king. I'm the one who, took, who, who subdued all of your enemies. I'm the one who won you the throne. For the record, Mr. David, you did nothing for me. I did, you did only things through me. And God shows up and assures him, I wasn't with you because I had a temple, because you tithed, because you were at church and you sang and you supported Northwind's ministry, though you should. That's not why I'm going to be with you. I was with you because I love you, David. So if there's any anxiety about my presence, get over it. I'm not leaving you. I've been here the whole time. So I think it's important he does that. Is he exposing maybe just a little anxiety on David's part? Certainly on our part in that regard. We want to domesticate God. But the interesting thing is next. He says, I have been with you. And then he launches in to nine consecutive statements where he starts with, I will. Starting in verse 9b, the end of chapter, uh, verse 9, everything goes from past tense, I was, to now I will, future tense. And he makes these incredible promises to David. And we'll put them up on the screen. I don't know if you can read them or not. But there's nine of them. You could check them. They're in the Bible. First one, I will make for you a great name. David, your reputation is not going to be made and built on temples and on winning wars. I make you a name. Nobody else. I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them. So David, this is a corporate vision, not about you. It's about Israel. I'm doing something for the people, not just you. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Peace won't come from winning battles, but it comes from God. I will, uh, the Lord will make you a house which the conquests and the legitimization, all these first chapters where he's creating a new capital city in Jerusalem and he's bringing the ark in and he's getting rid of his enemies and establishing new, new, new leaders with him. All of this legitimization, David, is not what makes your house last forever. I make it. So he's kind of stripping David, isn't he? He's promising, but he's also stripping David of these conceptions that maybe he might be prone to slipping into of thinking that he makes his kingdom last. I will raise up your offspring. So the promise extends beyond David to his offspring. Singular, by the way, to offspring. I will establish his kingdom so God will ensure it lasts. I will establish his throne forever. We'll talk about forever in a bit. I will be a father to him. So now we have a covenant, this covenant relationship where God comes and he says, this is my job description with you. And notice he doesn't say he will behave like a son to me. He says, I will be a father to him, and he will be to me like a son. So God is not saying, I'll be a father so long as you're a son. He says, no, I'm going to treat you like a son. How long? Because, and then he goes on, it's incredible, doesn't he? I will discipline him with the rod of men, but my steadfast love, my hesed love in Hebrew, will not depart from him. Meaning, he's going to sin. Your kings that come after you will all sin, but I will not leave them. I will discipline them. There will be the rod of, of exile and of famine and of these things because that's the natural consequences of living contrary to God's plan. However, I'll never leave them. So God establishes the job description. This is who I'm going to be to you. Discipline will not mean abandonment. And what you're seeing in this covenant, this unconditional covenant, is a break from every other covenant ever made for the most part. Covenants always have an if-then construction. If you do this, then I will do that. God breaks the mold here and with the gospel, which of course this is pointing to, and he says, it's all I will. It has nothing to do with you. No if on you. I will be the God I say I am, even when you're not the people you should be. It's a completely unconditional covenant. It's actually mind-boggling that he would make this promise. 
And David's job is what? Only believe and trust it. Sounds a lot like the gospel, right? Your job, David, is not to respond any other way, just to believe. Don't go building me temples, just believe. And he reveals himself then. God reveals himself as a God of faithfulness. I am going to, I'm never going to let you go. And I talked about this before. That word hesed means that love is not emotional. Our culture could use this. We often don't feel like we love each other. But that's not what love is. Love is an act of the will. And God says, even when I don't feel like loving you, when you're unlovable, I'm never going to stop acting like I love you. I'm never going to stop loving you. And this faithfulness is what we're asked to trust and what David is asked to trust from here on. But of course, as usual, we do have problems with this. And this will bring us to the third part where he reveals his son. So how does this help, right? How does this prophecy to David 3,000 years ago help modern Canadians and Christians? Um, the answer comes in the repeated use of the word forever, olam in Hebrew. It's in verse 13 and twice in verse 16. So what is forever? Have you noticed? He could say like Isaiah, he will be counselor, wonderful counselor, healer, husband, friend, all these things forever. But God says and emphasizes the monarchical and the royal structure and says he will be king forever, throne, kingdom, this language of domination, domination sounds too harsh, of overlordship, of God's sovereignty overall. So why does he do that? It's quite important. And first, let me point this one thing out. It says over my people Israel, is that right there, Maybe king forever, established forever? Oh, it doesn't happen in this, these passages, but it's, he repeatedly says my people Israel in this passage. There's four words that the Hebrew uses for the word nation. And there's only one of them that is almost always used to refer not to a political nation, which is the word goy oftentimes, which means a nation, state. But he uses the word for Israel, that's the word am, just am, if you're going to transliterate it in English. And that word is not a political state, but an ethnic one. So today, let's imagine Israel was to say, we're going to revive the monarchy. We're going to trace things back. We're going to find David's line, and we're going to put a Davidic king on the throne of Israel today. You never worship him, church, because we are not to worship a king of Israel, but the king of the Jews, because the Bible doesn't say we worship anything about a political nation of Israel, but the Jews, because the Jews have been pushed out in the diaspora. We have been grafted in. We worship Christ because Pilate hammers that thing into the thing, remember? And it says, behold, this is the king of the Jews. Because Pilate didn't know. See, Pilate is doing this thinking, there's no such thing as Israel. It's all Rome. So if this guy's a king, he's a king of a people, this ethnic group that believe a certain thing, not of a citizenship. And so we are, this king that is to come is intentionally described as not a king of a nation, but of a people. It's, a, it's an intentional word. Even today, if you go to Israel, they don't call themselves a goy. They refer to themselves as the Am, the ethnic Israel, because they know they've expanded beyond the borders of political Israel, well beyond. And so this kingdom of this king of this people that God is, is committed to will come and he'll reign forever. But what does a king do? Why emphasize king? Well, kings do one good thing and one very bad thing. The good thing is a king's job isn't just to come and establish order and get rid of the bandits and get rid of corruption. A king's job is to bring flourishing to the people, 
to bring peace, to, to create a world, a place where the people can flourish and be who they are called to be. And so this king who will do it forever and has all these incredible epithets attached to him, he'll do it in a way other kings can't. See, most kings can give you a few, what, minutes of peace? How long does peace last? Not very long. But this king will somehow be able to do it. He'll be able to accomplish it. Now, that's all wonderful, but a king doesn't just bring flourishing. A king must be obeyed. And that language of kingship is important. This king must be obeyed, otherwise you're a rebel, and rebels are crushed. That's just the way we handle things. That's the way a king works. And the difficulty of obeying this king that he points out is not that what he's asking is too hard. You know, it's going to sound strange, but I think the best theological lesson I ever learned outside of the Bible about sin and obedience comes from Moby Dick. Sounds strange. So in Moby Dick, and people I know, some people are like, Carl, you shouldn't quote books so much. That's crazy talk. Books are wonderful. I'm sorry, books are wonderful, and they give insight. These authors sometimes see the heart better than we do. And in, in Herman Melville's Moby Dick, there's Ishmael, the main character, steps into a, a church, and he's listening to a sermon um, of an old, you know, I imagine he'd be grizzled, and it's like an old sea captain who has become a Presbyterian minister. And he gives a sermon on Jonah, but he says something that is so profound, I thought, oh my goodness, Melville is smarter than I ever thought he was. And here is what the pastor says. Uh, where am I? Here it is. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. Melville's brilliant. He realizes something that Scripture tells us all the time, but maybe I was just too hard-headed to see it. The difficulty in obeying the king is not because he demands too much, but because I have to disobey myself to obey him. And I don't want to disobey myself. I know I shouldn't do certain things, but I want to. And the difficulty isn't in, oh, I don't know, putting down the phone, not being distracted, not watching this, not, or whatever it is. That's not the difficulty. The difficulty is telling myself, I am not king. It's very hard for me and for all of us to say we are not sovereign of our own hearts and our own minds. We must give up and surrender to the king. And this is what he demands. So how do we do it? And this is where we close. I can't just leave it there because if I leave it here and tell you you should obey. Imagine a pastor ends the sermon and says, you should obey. Yeah, Carl, we know that. You don't need a pastor to tell you that. We know we should obey. The problem is we can't obey. We can't get it right. David can't get it right. Nobody can. How can we be this people? How can we obey, to this, obey this king? And the answer this week came to me, and I know it's not Christmas. I've already mentioned Elf and Christmas spirit. But I like Christmas. I'm unabashed about it. I love it. And there's this, this old song. Remember, O Little Town of Bethlehem? It's heretical. It's horrible in so many ways. But, but... It gets this right, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You see, the way, reason you and I can obey this king is because when, when, when God says, I'm going to strike him with the rod of men, but I'll never depart from him, that he will bring peace. Listen, no king can bring you peace because even if it's stable as it is in, in here, it's stable in Niagara region. Are you at peace? No, you have financial problems, you worry about your kids, your grandkids, the government, covid there's no peace. 
This king can bring peace. And the reason that that song says all the hopes and fears are met in thee tonight, what it's saying is all the hopes we have for peace, all that longing in us that tells us one day we'll be happy, one day our kids will be safe, one day I won't have to worry, one day there'll be enough time, all of those hopes are met in Christ. Because his kingdom doesn't end. We don't need to worry that what's going to come after the next government. Right? That's always the the anxious, especially in the ancient world. What happens with the next king? The next king. There's no need for that anxiety. This king will last forever. But it's not just the hopes he brings, but the fears. All of our fears are relieved. He bears all of our all of our sin, all of the stuff. When he's on the cross, he is getting smitten by the rod of men because of you and I. And when he does that, when you look at him and you see that satisfaction of our hopes. Everything that we desire can be met in him because he met those conditions for us. It's a lot easier to obey. It's that old hymn, and I've quoted it so many times. It's by William Cowper, and he says, um, To see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his parting voice, transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. When you see that he did it all and you didn't deserve any of it, it becomes a lot easier to obey. Not perfect, not easy all, entirely, but a lot easier to surrender your own will when you realize that your own will just gets you in trouble and that his will is perfect for you. Christianity says, trust him. He has taken all the responsibility for making you perfect. All you need to do is the same thing David had to do, accept the promise and trust the promiser. Let's pray.